2010, a preaching odyssey. <laughs> now, I know that we are here January 2010 in Southern California. I know that. But to begin, I want us to go back to January 1855, when I was not alive, really. John, you weren't either, right? No. And I want you to envision at the beginning of this series of messages in London, a young 20 year old preacher named Charles Spurgeon stepping up after the reading of this text. And this is what he says. It has been said that the most important study by mankind is man. May I propose that it may be that the more important study of God's people is God. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, and the existence of the great God whom we call our Father. It is to that subject that I must call you this morning. And brothers and sisters here at Lake Avenue Church, it is to that subject that I call us today as we gather as a family. I'll tell you, when I'm in the community and people find out that I'm one of these um, reverend types, man of the cloth, sometimes we get into a question that is something like this. What is the central thing about being a Christian? And usually my answer is something like this. The central thing about it is the opportunity to have relationship with God. The opportunity to have a relationship with God that is available through faith in Jesus Christ. And of course, when I start giving that kind of big talk, the natural next question is then, all right, Tell me what God is like if you have a relationship to him. And so we take this scriptures that we call the word of God and we open them to the very beginning and we find an overture. Uh, those of you who are here during the Advent series, do you remember when we opened the beginning of the New Testament to Matthew chapter 1, I talked about that overture that introduces us to Jesus and to all the main themes of the New Testament. Well, today when we open the entire Bible, we have an overture in which the central matter is this. God is saying, I will make myself known. That's what the center of this is. Now, I know, I know this. That when we read Genesis chapter 1, we want to move immediately from the main point of who God is to other sorts of things. We, we suddenly get into there and say, well, I want to figure out how that all happened. Give me all the details. How long were exactly these days when, when we really didn't have day and night fully separated until, until day four? How, how long until we get locked in on that? Or, especially being here with so many people who have been to college or grad school, if you've ever taken a religion class in any university, the first question that often comes about, well, wait a minute, you're reading this account that Liz read for us, this Genesis creation story. 
But doesn't that compare just so much with what happened in uh, Babylonia with their account and in Egypt and in Acadia? Uh, deal with those things. And I think especially in this community where God has put us, where we have Caltech so close and so many scientists in our church, which I'll just tell you I'm happy about. And especially with Fuller Seminary right across the street and all the seminarians who look back at the other creation accounts. I know that for the whole ministry that I have here, I can't ignore those big questions. And I think that they are important. I do. But I'll get to them if you let me be your pastor long enough. I don't know what it was, but it must be an important message for us. <laughs> but today, I tell you, when we open up Genesis chapter 1, I've had this deep burden to make sure that we as a church family do not miss the main thing. The main thing. And what happens when we open the Word of God, what we find is an overture about God Himself. That's the main point. We can't let anything get us off that track. That the subject of the very first verse, if you look at it, is God. Go to the end of the chapter. The subject of the very last verse is God. All of the action throughout the entire chapter is enacted by God. In fact, there's no other real character in that first chapter. And in just 34 verses, the name of God is used 35 times. What I find is this, that God, in opening up this, his word, and inspiring it, said something like this to us. Intuitively, you know that there is something in this world that is greater than what you have experienced and something greater than yourself. Intuitively, you know you've been made for something bigger than you find in this material world. I am that person. And now I will make myself known to you. And that's what we're going to do as we begin this year. Um, I'll just tell you this. In chapters 2 and 3 of Genesis, we're told some very beautiful things about God. And when we get to chapter 2, we find that this God who is revealed in chapter 1 is a relational God. He wants to walk and talk with people. And in fact, next week we'll see He made us so that our lives are whole when we have God in our lives. When we get to chapter 3, we learn that not only is He relational, but this God is holy and righteous. And that when people engage in evil and rebellion, God holds people accountable. But also at the end of chapter 3, we'll find that this relational God, who is holy, is also gracious. Thank God. He is gracious. And immediately after people have sinned, he begins to develop a plan that leads to forgiveness and restoration. But I'll tell you, as you come to Genesis chapter 1, what we have are the pillars of the identity of God upon which everything else that is said about God is built. And in fact, if we can but grasp them and see that this is what God says he is, then, then it will keep us from error and from heresy. Or as that young Spurgeon, I can't believe he preached this when he was 20 years old, can you? This young Spurgeon would say, when we take time to see what God says about himself, it will expand our minds to see and think things beyond what we would otherwise see. It will at the same time humble our souls. 
but also it will be the source of our comfort and of our hope. Now, as I begin, I thought maybe the best thing is to think about how people in this uh, 21st century Southern California think about God. What do people think about God? Uh, I talked to so many people and I've, tr- I've tried to sort of boil it down into two main areas. I know there are many different branches of each of these, but two main ways that I, I usually get when I talk with people. Number one, some have the notion that the deity, whatever we want to call this, um, is remote from what happens in this world. Uh, those who have especially grown up in the Western world, when you use the word God, so many think something like what we have in the Bible, a person who is distinct from what has been made. But, but the notion that I get is that even though people think, well, there might be a God like this, that God can't possibly be involved in everything that happens in history. And certainly not in every part of my life. And mostly I, I think people don't want that to be, that God might actually know us and be involved in everything that we think and everything that we do. Um, the idea is, yes, maybe the big things God will deal with, like Nazism in Germany and genocide in Cambodia. And we really hope, and maybe some will even show up at a church, when we're into a really tough time of our lives, that we can got, get God to get us out of it. But, but the notion that, that God is present and active and involved in everyone's life, everywhere in the world, at every stage in history, most say no, they have more of a notion of a remote God. And the second big, broad, general way that people think about God is that this deity is somehow an impersonal force. People in Southern California are very spiritual people. Uh, I'm sure there are even now people walking through Eaton Canyon trying to get in touch with the spiritual sides of their beings. We, We just intuitively know that there has to be more than just a material world. I mean, intuitively, we we grasp that. And so we begin to think, maybe from the things that we hear in our world, and especially those of you who come from more Eastern backgrounds, that everything is somehow a part of the deity, and I need to get in touch with that spiritual part, that divine part of myself. This comes out in so many ways. Uh, I shouldn't be surprised by this, but a number of years ago, I was very surprised when uh, Louise Hayes' book, The Secret, Gain such a following. Do any of you know that book? Why? Oh, I'm glad a few. Nine o'clock, I don't think anybody did. Or else they just weren't listening to me. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's what happened. It's, it's that book that if you've ever watched the Oprah show, she liked to talk about that book. And the notion of the secret is that there is a secret spiritual force in this universe. And we can be the center of that. We, we can make things happen if we can just gain the secret to somehow be able to to manipulate these things. And it can even be very small things. Like like when when you go to the farmer's market on Saturday here in Pasadena and you try to find a parking lot, a parking space, and there are none, that if you can tap into the secret, you can not only get a parking space, you can get the best parking space. I, I found Chris and I often talk about this, and she's much better at this secret than I am. It's just one of the things that we found. The notion is that as long as God is something or the deity is something that we can somehow manipulate for our benefit, it's okay. It's okay. But, but the idea that there is a God who is involved who might actually direct our lives, 
that's something we want to hold at arm's length. Um, and those thoughts about God have made their ways into the church. Do you know that that's true? The, the idea that my thoughts and my moral choices couldn't really matter to God. He couldn't care about everything that I do. Or this idea that I've come to church, and maybe you've come for this reason today, to try to get God to do something for me. And God as a father is willing to bless us and do so many wonderful things. But the idea that I can somehow tap into this force and get God to give me the very best life this very moment I could imagine define the way that I think about my best life. In other words, that I can manipulate God has made its way into so many church circles. Do you know what we need to do? We need to read the book of Genesis again. And see what God has to say about himself. And so we begin. Are you ready? What does God say about himself? Number one. First, God in this opening overture says, I am. If you wonder whether there is a God, in the very beginning words, God declares, I am. In the beginning, God uh, those of you who know the uh, Bible very well, um, you already know this. Those of you who don't, just listen to me. Uh, later on, after the creation, as God was drawing a people to himself through whom he blessed the world, the Jewish people, Moses was one of the people that God used. And Moses was obeying God, whatever God would tell him to do for a long period of time. Then you come to Exodus 33 and 34. You can read this marvelous section in which Moses turns to God and essentially says something like this. God, I've been obeying you for a long time, and you know everything about me, but I don't know you. Tell me your name. And, and for ancient Jewish people, to know the name of a person was to know something about that person. And in one of the most beautiful places in the Bible, God says, I will. And he has Moses sort of hide in this rock because to see God's face to face, you, you can't do that. And God passes in front of him. And then God declares in his opening words, Yahweh, Yahweh. Uh, the words together which means, I am who I am. I am you, you don't have to sit back and think, was there a time when you were not? No, I always am. And as the book of Genesis opens, that's what God is declaring to us. To us who are bound by matters of time and space and material. God says, before there was any of that, I already am. In whatever beginning you can imagine, I was already there. And I created. Which brings us to one of the biggest questions that all people have. I, I, I was laughing as I was talking with a scientist friend's, uh, friend of mine. It's a, it's a pursuit that ties together children and the best scientists in this world. And it's, it's this pursuit of finding out who ultimately caused things. I mean, have you ever gone into like a children's Sunday school? Your pastor has to do this. They're the hardest places to go into. And the kids give them the chance to ask a question. And often the question is this, uh, who made God? And I say, Pastor Tracy, you come up and you take that one. Because you know what they're thinking. You want to, because we all think this. It's a part of us as being human. Uh, the children say, well, who made me? Well, depending on how much we want to get into the biology of this, uh, 
uh, mom and I did. Well, who made you and mom? Well, you know, Nana and granddad. They're to blame for that. Well, who made Nana and granddad? And eventually you just keep going back and back and back until you get to this point that we usually say there has to be someone who caused everything. What theologians have called the self-existent one. One who exists without a cause. It's the very same issue that that the finest scientists do. We we look at this world, we see the, the complexity of it. We see these matters of how the laws function and especially those of causation. We go all the way back and we try to say, how did this happen? And most people, not all, I know not all, but most of us as human beings, when we ask those questions, come to this point that there must be some sort of uncaused cause. And do you see how the Bible opens? It turns to all of us. And it says that uncaused cause that just boggles your mind because you can't even think of a time when something started everything else. That that uncaused cause, God says, I am. I exist. That one that you know must be greater than this material world. That longing inside of yourself to find something greater than yourself. I am. I have always existed. And because of this, you and I have the opportunity to know a God who is greater than everything in this material world. Uh, A God who can intervene. And listen to me. Are you still with me here? Listen to me. When you go into the classes or read the scholars who say that all religions start with a a God who is an uncaused God, uh, that is not true. So often we're taken back to three main what what scholars call creation myths. uh, The Babylonian, uh, the Egyptian, and the Akkadian. And so many times people say, look, they're very similar to what we find in Genesis chapter 1. And indeed there are some similarities. However, there is one absolutely fundamental difference that changes everything. In those other creation myths, uh, the beginning uh, reality is something that's already here before God. There was already some sort of substance here out of which God came. Actually, those other stories are what we call theogenies, which means how gods began, but not Genesis chapter 1. You see that? In the beginning, before anything else was, I am. That's the God whom we have come to worship today. Second, God says, I am the maker, not the made. I am the maker of everything. I am not the made. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. But note this. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. God is already being pictured as someone distinct from everything that has been made. Now, when you go back to Western religions, which many of us, that's our background, passed on to us, the basic notion of the deity was that something in this created world was God. Sometimes it was the sun, 
Sometimes it was the wind. Sometimes it was the uh, the oceans. And often you had these gods in competition with one another. This was called polytheism. But always it was something in this created world that was the deity. And often you had to try to get it in touch with whichever part of that deity was the strongest at the time. Those who have come from more eastern backgrounds. Uh, as far back as you can go, you can find this notion of pantheism. Everything is God. That, that all that is always existed. And so what we have to see is how we are a part of that, of that divinity. Um, but God comes to us and says, no, uh, I am spirit. I'm not a part of the material world. And though I am very concerned about everything in this world, in fact, I love the way it's put, the Spirit of God is hovering over everything in the world as in the pictures of a mother hen who cares about her chicks. God cares about what happens in this world. God wants us to know that He is not anything in this world. So if you want to know God, you're not going to find God by simply looking at or worshiping anything that is made in this world. God made everything in this world. And, and that means that you're not going to identify God by looking in the mirror either. Some of you aren't listening. We're not going to find God by looking in the mirror. We're going to find God by seeing how he has revealed himself to us. And all of this gives such significance to places like in the New Testament when we're told no one has ever seen God at any time except God the Son, he has made him known. And so you come to the book of John, that's John 1.18. You come to the book of John chapter 1, and do you know how it begins? Genesis begins in the beginning. Do you know how John 1 begins? In the beginning. In the beginning. So he's bringing us back. He says, all right, if you're going to understand Jesus... You've got to get all the way back to the very beginning creation story. In the beginning, there was a word because word spoke and everything came into being. But I'm going to tell you that word was with God. But more than that, the word was God. Now, we have different religious groups who say, well, he was still this word, a part of the created order. They haven't read the next verse. All things were made by him. And if anyone misses it, he puts on again. And without him was not anything made that has been made. That if we will come to know God, we're not going to find it in the created order, but at looking to him through faith in Jesus who makes him known. Colossians 1, the Apostle Paul wants to drive this home. I just find him being even more awestruck than I am by all of this. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 to 17, I think we put it here so you can look at it. Paul, just looking at Jesus Christ, said, In him, all things were created. I can hear him listening to his people, because I think it was more a church that preached with him. Uh, what things, Paul? <laughs> things in heaven and on earth, he said. Visible things, invisible things. Whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now just think of the significance of this. This is why prayer becomes possible. Because we're not praying to something that is a part of the same temporariness that we are a part of. We're not praying to something that is a part of the same 
fallenness and imperfection that we are a part of. We are praying to one who made all things, who is not the made, but who is the maker. I'll tell you, in the times of struggle and difficulty, where we need something bigger than ourselves and anything that we have seen in this world, this is the kind of God we need. Praise God. As we open His Word, God is declaring to us, this is the kind of God I am. Do you see that? Third, God says, I am a who, not a what. I'm a who. Which may be one of the most striking parts of Genesis chapter 1. You know, I've talked about this sort of thing in a lot of places. And in the university that I used to be the president of, one time I was talking with our faculty members. And our science faculty members came up to me and said, this is the part we really like. Um, that, that whenever we look at what has been made, uh, we get to see what our Father has done. We also know we can look at it very seriously and ask the very hard questions and know that God is greater than our questions and we're not going to defeat Him. It gives us the opportunity for exploration and discovery without fear. Those of you who who love science, don't be afraid of it as people of faith. In fact, you'll find, like, like Kepler, that the more you get into it, you'll be able to, Kepler put it this way, to think God's thoughts after him. Something that I just love when I read through Genesis chapter 1 is that uh, all of those qualities that psychologists attribute to personhood. What what is a person? Uh, A person is one who is engaged in activity, uh, in, uh, in intellect, in will, in emotion. All of those we see here in what God does. And then always there is this repeated thing, and God said, and God said. The God we are talking about is a person, a person who speaks. In fact, as I read it, and I don't know how you read this, but as I read it, the way I picture God revealing himself is is like a poet or a musician. So I'm glad to have the two Johns here Poets and musicians, any of you who have written poetry or, or done, done the arts in any way, you know, sometimes you're sitting there just with kind of a blank page and you have something in your soul and in your heart. And my sermons sometimes feel like this when I write them. They don't always come out like this when I preach them. Sometimes I write these things. I say, praise God. You, you start writing. And when you finish looking at it, you say, oh, that's good. But God in his creative actions does something that we can never do. The ultimate poet, the ultimate uh, artist, he starts ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. And beautiful things come into being. He says, let there be light. And there is light. And when he's done with each day, he looks at it and says, it's good. And when he's done with everything, he says, it is very good. It is very good. What, what's going on here is only something that a person can do. It makes no sense for this just to be a force, to be this kind of God. And it, it tells us something that we simply sense inside, that this world is not just a random event. 
See, Genesis 1 is declaring to us who come here to, to know God better that the world that you and I live in is a, pers- a, a purposed product of a person. Get all those P's in there. A purposed product of a person. Yes, he is a self-existent God who always is. He, he is a God who is separate from creation. Uh, he, he, though today, is declaring to us that he is also a who, who knows what he is doing. Which means in the midst of things that are just a mess, it's not haphazard. God still is at work. And I'll tell you, this notion of a God who is a who and, and, and not a what, just contradicts so many of the philosophies that undergird what is happening in our day. For example, if you, if you, become, if you try to reject this kind of a God and you become what I'll call atheist, atheist, try to understand a God without any personal God behind it, then what is it that is eternal? And what you have to have is something like matter being eternal. And what is the ultimate truth that guides the universe? Usually we have to just come up with some sort of laws that, that are governing the interaction of the, the particles and the radiation. I'll tell you, as people live life and try to get away from, from a God who is and is, and things happen to us that make us say, that ought not to be. There's nobody to answer that. If this world is just random and there's no who behind the universe. And so we have to live lives knowing that this is a meaningless universe with no direction, no purpose, where goodness will not prevail. And this is where God says when when he gives us his word, he says, open it up. And I'm going to tell you what I am like. I am. And I am a who. In the beginning, God. The ultimate truth behind this universe is a person. What is governing this universe is not impersonal laws, but a God who knows what is good and what is best. A God who says, I am a you, not an it. And a God, as we are going to see next week, who is ready to enter into a relationship with you and me. That's what we see. What else does God say to us? Fourth, God says, I am a God of order and beauty and purpose. And beauty, uh, order and purpose and beauty. Again, this gives anyone who loves art, anyone who loves science, the opportunity to look at the world and try to see what is God doing and how is he bringing it about in what way do I see that God is declaring I'm a God of purpose and order and beauty? Just look at the way that it's described, the way he creates. What happens in creation? Read through that chapter. It moves from chaos into shape and to order. It begins with utter darkness. Then it moves toward the separation of darkness and light. It begins with this disordered expanse. And suddenly there become these distinctions of sky and water and dry ground. It begins just with barrenness, which would be boring, except there's nothing alive to be bored. And it moves to life actually being in this world. And the life itself, 
moves from, yes, the inanimate to unintelligent life, eventually to life created in God's image. And then when you read it, God speaks laws into this universe that govern and direct. God is telling us, if you want to know me, you're not going to just know me by knowing me as a powerful creator. I am a creator, but I am also a craftsman who is at work giving things a beautiful form. And when God is done, after each day he says it's good, and I love it at the end, it is very good. And when we look at this world, what we see, it is a world where God is still at work. Now, Spurgeon said that this study of God is something that will give us consolation and hope. Do you see how this point gives us consolation and hope? Because this God who is at work bringing beauty out of disorder is still at work today. God is. And he's still doing the same thing taking what seems to be to us chaos and bringing shape and order and beauty out of it. Do you believe that? Oh, I've been listening to this new CD by Stephen Curtis Chapman. Um, do you, I, I, I mentioned it during the Advent season. Uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman and, and his wife, his family, lost their little girl. She was so young. When their 17-year-old son was backing the truck out of the garage and didn't know she was there. She was running out to wave goodbye to him, and he ran over her and killed her. This led to incredible tragedy. It seems to make no sense, right? It seems to make no sense. And Stephen Curtis Chapman, a man of faith, struggled, struggled, I'm sure still struggles with this matter, but he did it in the light of Genesis chapter 1. And the title of this CD, which I would encourage you to listen to if you are walking through turbulent times, is is beauty from ashes. The, the point that he wants to make is the God who reveals himself is a God who can start with ashes and believe it or not, even what seems to be the worst that life can mete out can take that and transform it and work it into beauty. In his hotel rooms as he was traveling for concerts, agonizing over this, he would sit in his hotel room pull out his guitar with his, and it would have his recording device and the songs on there he recorded while he was sitting there reflecting upon this and wondering, is it really true? And finding God saying, it is true. And you can trust me. And that's what Genesis 1 is saying. If you want to know what God is like, God says, this is what I do. What I start, you may not see what I'm doing. But when I am done, it will be beautiful. And you must learn, you must learn to trust me. Have you ever read how Jesus applied this? Again in the Gospel of John, which is based so much on the book of Genesis. The Gospel of John, Jesus said, you've left everything behind. And you, you, you wonder where it's all leading. Now I'm leaving too. I, I think I've told you about this, how this spoke to me when we lost our second child a number of years ago. The disciples came to him and said, uh, we don't know what you're doing. Peter just gets angry. I'll die in your place. Uh, 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 Thomas, he's just angry. We don't know why, where you're going and we don't know what you're doing. Philip, I, I know Philip too. We just want some miracles around here. We don't want this death stuff, these miracles. That's what, that's what we like around here. And do you remember what Jesus said to them? Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Remember, the book of John began... Within the beginning, you believe in God. 
So trust me. I know what I'm doing. I know where I'm going. And I'm doing it for you. Trust me. And of course now that's what brings us here to church. That place where he went through a cross and an agonizing death became the very vehicle of our salvation and our hope. A God who can bring triumph and rescue out of a cross. What a kind of God is that? It's the God of Genesis chapter 1. What is God like? God declares to us. Even though you may not see it in the chaos of your moment, I am a God of order and a God of purpose and a God of beauty. Finally, God declares to us, and I am a God who is in control. And we ask, of what? And Genesis chapter 1 says, of everything. Again, the theological term is God is sovereign. We use it in our songs, and I know so many of you say, what on earth is that talking us about? And it's this, that God pictures himself as standing outside the universe. And then when he speaks, it happens. He speaks, let there be light, and obedience happens. There's not much of a struggle there. And everything he speaks happens, it obeys. And with that, one of the most basic truths of all of Scripture, mark it down, is introduced to us. And that is when those who are created obey the word of God, then our lives find order. He created human beings, as we're going to see next week, in his image. And he gives to us this privilege, this responsibility of obeying. And if you look in places like with the rich young ruler of saying no, But as we turn and go our own ways, thinking that life will be better, instead we mess up our lives. But when we look into this word and see what God tells us to do and we obey, he will bring our lives into order. But you know, this is one part of what I'm talking to you about today that keeps most people away from the God of the Bible. Because we don't want somebody else to rule our lives. And that's always been. Sadly, your own pastor struggles with this. I wonder, am I the only one? I get up in the morning and I so often think, this, this is what I want to do. And, and I think the Bible says, no, that's not what you should do. But everything inside of me thinks, that that's really what I want to do. I tell you what, I'm going to do it and life will be better and then God will forgive me. That's, that, that's how I'm going to live. You know, we live in this world where every, all the scholars are talking to me about postmodernity, And they say that the, the, the main characteristic of postmodernity is that postmoderns in our world don't like an outside authority speaking into their lives. And I say, and that's new. <laughs> that's the stuff that you and I are made of. And then we come into church And your pastor opens up this word and God says, I am in control of everything. And if you want your life to be beautiful, you have to let me be the Lord of your life. And everything inside of us says anything but that. And God says that. I put up here what I call 
This is from me. I've called it a Waybrightian contention. (laughs) I've been asking myself why people struggle so much with Genesis chapter 1. And I know there are many reasons. But I wonder if this isn't the main one. So you can see it and I'll say it. Why do we struggle with this chapter? I contend that we do not like a world that begins with a voice of a sovereign God speaking into the darkness. And the reason we struggle with that is very simple. That a God who commanded the light to shine is a God who will command us to. And a God who can distinguish the good from the evil and say this was good can evaluate us too. And let's face it, we don't want to be commanded and we don't want to be evaluated. I have been standing in awe of preaching this message to us because I know that any message that does justice to God's own revelation of himself will mean that many people will say a relationship with that kind of God is just what I don't want. But may I come to you today and say, this is the only way really to live. In fact, in that recreating work that Jesus had, he comes in John chapter 10, verse 10, and he says, listen to me. Thieves in this world may fool you. They're doing it for themselves. But I'm not a thief who's come to steal and kill and destroy your life. I have come to remake you so that you can have life to the full. But I'm telling you, it only happens as we surrender all that we are to God and say, with your help and by your grace, Father, when you speak, I will obey and I will trust you. Take the chaos that I experience in my world and bring it to beauty. I contend that Genesis 1 is and has been under attack not so much because, well, it can be compared to other accounts and not so much because some people think, well, this whole notion of a seven-staged beginning of our world is offensive to my scientific work. I don't think it is. But I think that the reason it's under attack is when we see what God says about himself, it spells the end to self-rule. And it tells us we can work at it as hard as we want and it will remain chaotic. And it says, will you believe me that if you will give all that you are to me, I will recreate you. In the beginning... God created. And I'm just saying, His work is still going on. And God is ready to remake each one of us. If only we will learn to trust and to obey Him. To His glory. Amen. Amen.